You are listening to Lightning Strikes Thrice, the JRPG Games Club podcast that respects the inherent humanity of cats. This is Season 6, Episode 7, covering the destruction of the Kukai Foundation in Xenosaga Episode 1 for the PS2. I am your host, Chris Taylor, and my pronouns are he, him. With me today is... Ryan Beatty. My pronouns are they, them. And John, my pronouns are he, him. What happened last time? Last time, we journeyed inside Cosmos to clear the party's name, and that turned into Backstory O'Clock as Junior and Xion both relived youthful trauma at the hands of a benevolent entity named Nephilim on a pre-destruction Milsha. Their reward for confronting their fears was the revelation that Cosmos's truest form was a weapon to confront an entity known as Oodoo and that two realians named Cecily and Kath trapped on Milsha were key to everything. Also, uh, we stopped an international incident where the other two major parties were trying to destroy the Kukai Foundation and frame them for a bunch of shit. It was an interesting ploy because it was Utik basically trying to jam up the party while actually getting second Milsha's rights revoked so they could gain access to old Milsha where the Udu is. Yes, and uh, it also showed that basically the fascists had already infiltrated. Like, Utik is already deep uh, installed in the Federation at this point. Man, imagine if if fascists were deeply involved in the government. Couldn't be me. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, John, what was that? (laughs) No, no, that's that's Wait, better. Did that's... I cover it? <laughs> yeah, you covered it. Basis. <laughs> uh, so we start off and we're hunting for Alan because it's been at least 10 minutes since Alan simped for Xion and Xion misses that. <laughs> Along the way to find him, we can collect the robot part right leg. I don't remember where you find Alan, but I checked the park area. He wasn't there. And I checked mm-hmm. the Elsa and Hammer told me he was probably um, drowning his sorrows in food, which so I checked the restaurant and he wasn't there. But it was interesting that all of the NPCs have like various ideas of what Alan would be up to when he's sad. <laughs> uh, just everyone cares about Alan except Xion. <laughs> Xion only cares about Alan so she can apologize to him, but not for his sake. So she feels better. <laughs> God. When she does, he's like, oh, no, I wasn't upset. And then she's mad that she did not get the (laughs) gratification of delivering an apology and making someone else feel good. Fuck off. Yeah, no, she wants a simp, but doesn't want a boyfriend. Yeah. Well, it seems like she just doesn't want a human being because when she finds Alan uh, posing with another fella in the uh, bar, she's just upset that he's having a good time, I guess. I love that. It's so good. Mm hmm. Wait, why aren't you drowning your misery about how much you have a crush on me, Alan? That sucks. Um, so before actually uh, looking for him on this main quest, I went back to the dock colony to buy some gear and progress some side quests. And I discovered that you can actually buy an entire fourth eggs frame for 50,000 credits if you have 50,000 credits. I don't know why you would need a fourth eggs frame because your party is only three and you can swap people out, but you can buy a fourth if you want. Also, you can go and the NPC dialogue has progressed and they talk about past events now. And so the Cherenkov Dock Colony Massacre, they just 
chalk up to some thug beating up a bunch of uh, citizens now, which is cute. I guess you would want a fourth frame because um, some of the frames can't have certain types of equipment in certain places because of their design. Mm. So it might have like different loadout options than the other ones. That makes sense. Not to mention they have um, they basically would have a different stat orientation also, which could be more interesting. Uh, Shion's is extremely slow compared to the other ones. Yeah, mm. man, Shion fucking sucks ass, by the way. I finally looked at her stats. All of her stats are like 10 to 12 points lower than everyone else's, like every single one of them. It's funny because she is an essential member of my party because of the super robot summon spells. The Beyblade? I was very shocked to find out it is just a giant Beyblade and that wasn't a joke. Yeah, no, not a joke at all. The only way it could have been more Beyblade is because it's made out of two robot arms. If when it spins, the arms popped out to be spikes. <laughs> um, the other reason why Shion rules for me is you put on the EP consumption cut in half accessory. Hell yeah. And all of a sudden, all yes. of the cure all and revive spells uh, are way better than Momo's, at least for me, they are. The other thing with Shion, too, I think that justifies having her with the lower stats other than these already great things, too, is she's like theoretically the most flexible mm -hmm. um, in terms of what she can do because of Shockblade. Yeah. Yeah. She also uh, you can enable like a fast tech attack uh, to put an ether bomb uh, on your enemies, which really enables chaos. Yeah. Shion kicks ass. <laughs> the duality of man. Shion fucking sucks. Shion kicks ass. Shion kicks ass. Shion sucks ass as a person. That's true. So after finding Alan and his uh, Choaniki pose off, uh, we smash cut to Albedo, who's declaring that clearly it's it's time to hear that wonderful song as he uh, discards a, a seemingly dead Reallian's body and just begins maniacally cackling as any villain does. All the dead Reallians around him in this episode make me think that the game's implying that he's also a DME addict, but it never out and says it. Mm, I don't think that's true. Yeah, it will, because he's also like insane for a bunch of other reasons. And so he doesn't need the DME addiction, but it's just they talk about the smell of Reallian blood. So, yeah, I don't know. Some of that stuff is in next episode and I just accidentally played ahead. So what I will say based on a few things the next episode is I think Albedo has an obsession with um, based on what and who he is mm -hmm. being able to also kill an infinite identical chain of things, given what he yeah. thinks about himself. That totally makes sense. The fact that they are all identical and come off of a factory line is the point. Right. It also plays into his extreme nihilism and how that reflects his view of the realians. He, he sees totally. them as just things to play with and throw away. Totally. So not a DME addict, just a fucking creep. Yeah, <laughs> he's the <Yeah>. worst. <laughs> so we uh, we get back and cycle through the full cast where the more cosmically aware members of the crew uh, begin responding to the song as it plays. Chaos showing some sort of emotion and urgency for the first time in the series. Uh, Junior, Gaiden, and Willem all hear the siren song. The game just low keys, like, by the way, Junior and Gaiden just telepathically talk to each other. Right? <laughs> right. And then they're like, no one else could hear it, but Shion hears it, and they're all both, like, extremely concerned about that. Yeah, right, because they're mm -hmm. like, she's just a normal human. She doesn't have the psychic powers that we have. Yeah, Shion's not a weird new type, even though she has weird new type eyes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Also, the actual song that this game uses for the quote song of Nephilim is kind of a dud. It sucks. Yeah. It doesn't drive me mad and fill me with despair. It just kind of makes me bored. No, I think it was mixed in a weird way where it was completely indiscernible from any other background music. So I I didn't realize that they were actually commenting on the song that was playing itself. Yeah, the last time that song showed up was in the Milsha flashback, which we know is when the Song of Nephilim was last deployed. But yeah, it's mixed really low and it's just kind of this like ominous ambient singing that sucks. Well, the problem is, is that in the cutscene, you hear it for a while before anybody comments on it. So you're not Mm -hmm. completely sure if they're referring to the song that's playing and that's diegetic because of the timing of how they comment on it. That's also true. The humans notice that something's going on when the Federation fleet suddenly starts getting decimated by a massive gnosis all just gating in. The order is given to evacuate all citizens on the Durandal, preparing to scuttle the Foundation. Um, That's what our notes say, but I don't think they were planning to scuttle the Foundation so much as they just wanted to get people out. Yeah. Yep. They were willing to abandon it if they had to. But also, this is when Cosmos just shows up. And after almost an entire game of being really recalcitrant and defiant against Xion, she gets back into helpful, obedient robot mode for a second. And they try to delay the Gnosis attack with the Hilbert effect to buy them more time, which I thought that was interesting that like when we finally need Xion, Cosmos shows up and Xion's like, oh, thank God we need you and you're here. And that never happens. And then immediately flashes back to like, the vision of cosmos as the super weapon but it's still like don't do this because i'm worried that you're gonna do this universe ending thing and instead is like actually go ahead and go do this um the thing i really appreciate here too is that they uh respect the metaphysics that they have built for the gnosis because the point of doing the hillwood effect is not to kill the gnosis it's so they can't phase through the wall of the foundation and kill the people Mm -hmm. so they effectively prevent any more from getting in than are already in there yeah. Mm-hmm. It also enables some sort of defense against the Gnosis as they move in to evacuate. Yeah, but the Federation is so bad at that. Mm-hmm. Oh, they just get fucking bodied. <laughs> <laughs> so at this point, Gnosis are inside the Federation itself, and the party rushes out to assist in the evacuation and protection of the regular Joes and Janes that live on the Foundation. The game is kind of confused about whether or not civilians know what the Gnosis are. There are some citizens of the Foundation that seem to know about the Gnosis and others that kind of work in the higher levels of the Kukai Foundation that know exactly what they are. And then still others are completely clueless and call them monsters instead of Gnosis. And like, on the one hand, I know that like misinformation and when things are being kept a secret and redacted that people will have varying ideas on what a threat is but in game because you're talking to people who say what are these monsters at the exact same time that you're talking to people who are like oh no the gnosis are here it just kind of um it's like it's been 14 years since since the milshin incident and i feel like either more people would know or fewer people would know but there's this weird confusing mix to me you say that but when we look at like the general awareness of people in our real lives, I think that uh, this ignorance should be expected by people whose job it isn't to know about the Gnosis, if that makes any sense. There are several people today that could still probably not identify a single nation in the Middle East from a map. 
Okay, yeah. Also, the civilian understanding of the Gnosis is different because we have not really had a consistent interaction with a same type of civilian, right? So on the Woglinde, mm -hmm. people knew about it, but weren't sure if they thought it was true or not because they were military or vector. Um, so they have the understanding of we spent an hour on this during our military training or an education or whatever, right? Right. So there are some military people in the Kukai Foundation, but at that point, the majority of the civilians who would have encountered the Gnosis on Second Milsha died. And the people who did not, it's your weird neighbor telling you that aliens are real when they're the only aliens <laughs> that we know exist in the entire universe. Like, as far as everyone else is concerned, they live in um, the alien franchise where space is dead. Right. Right. Okay, yeah, I, I, I can take both of your points after discussion, but I will not deny that while playing it, I got a little bit like, wait, why are there so many wildly conflicting opinions in the same room, basically? Well, and if you want some tonal uh, whiplash and uh, uh, some weird awareness things at this moment, you can actually uh, ignore the sections that we're heading to for now for the evacuation and head to the eggs shop where it's business as usual and no one knows <laughs> that the Gnosis are attacking, including the professor. Yeah, that was super funny because that's when I went and did the first few professor things. And I'm like, <laughs> my man just having a good time right now. <laughs> I mean, I can buy that the professor and assistant Scott would be clueless underground, but not the whole rest of the egg shop, like the people who are selling you shit. Right. That is absolutely hilarious. It is a video game ass video game thing. That is a very PS2 era thing. job uh in sector 26 and 27 the old residential area of the foundation is we need to go rescue 13 civilians who are still trapped in the city section and it's another one of those like re-explore this town area but now it's a dungeon and it's on fire and everyone's in danger and we already had one of these with the Woglinde but this one switches it up quite a bit more with newly revealed openings and and different little lore bits so it feels different from the village version of sector 26 and 27 there's a shocking amount of like walkable space in what is realistically like three screens like they yeah it's very dense absolutely it's very dense. And it's an area that you don't really have to explore uh, in any other portion of the game. There's, there's a short sequence, I believe, uh, for a side quest there, but uh, nothing mandatory. Yeah, there's. I really liked the NPC dialogue in the first little bit of the foundation because I really like the town flavor in Xenosaga episode one. But yeah, none of it is required until all of a sudden we're rescuing these folks. 
So there's not a lot to discuss about the dungeon other than the enemies here, because basically what's happening is the area is laid out. You're on the main street. There are a few people here. There's some anecdotes we'll probably talk about with individual people. So I guess we can talk about them here. Um, the notable guy in this the main area where the uh, hotel and the bar are is for me, the um, owner of our treasure, where the owner is basically dying on the floor and says, my treasure's in the safe. Uh, mm -hmm. The code is the birthday on the photo. And you go upstairs and there's like a poster sized photo of a kid with a birthday on it. You go punch that into the safe and then their daughter is in there. So the hotel is actually named after their daughter and he locked her in the safe to keep her alive. Yeah. Yeah. She has to step over her father's corpse on the way out of the door because he is in between the safe and the door. That whole bit, the ultimate tragedy of that story is just kind of brushed off because it's not really the main point. But like the father and the daughter had been at odds and bickering and fighting basically since mom died. Yeah. Uh, and it seems like they never really reconciled. And all of a sudden, uh, the daughter realizes that the nose has killed her dad and she just has to be like, well, both my parents are dead. Minor NPC stories like that are probably, for me, the primary strength of Xenosaga 1 outside of how like interesting the combat system is. Mm -hmm. I agree. Do we have any other NPCs on this screen before we move on to the next one that are interesting? Um, I honestly was just really impressed with the traversal mechanics, like going onto rooftops and running kind of diagonally upwards across awnings so you don't fall all the way off. The physics of that are so good. Yeah. Yeah. They're great. Like doing JRPG platforming without a jump button is often a recipe for disaster, but it, it works here. And I like uh, revisiting a lot of these areas where like you're going behind a place that used to be inaccessible and operating a lift somewhere. And all of a sudden you can like reach this whole back area that you were intrigued by before. And now you can actually go in. Absolutely. This this whole uh, uh, screen was fairly small and there was a lot of backtracking, but it was backtracking in a way where it wasn't upsetting because you unlocked the new shortcut with every once over, it seemed. They make really good use of the 3D here because this area could have been a 2D area represented like how you would represent a golden sun. But then you go up through the our treasure out onto a walkway and then you can cross the street on a suspended walkway and you get to an area where they do a camera perspective thing to show you the path you created if you fuck with the awning that you, the guy hates when you fuck with. Yeah. That does a lot for, like, the geography of the area when you see it from a different perspective other than the traditional, like, Xenosaga forced camera angle. Yeah, it's so weird, the push-pull between Xenosaga's art style, it's extremely anodyne and generic, and I bounce off it, and Xenosaga does a whole lot to make its spaces feel like real spaces. Like both are true and both exist at the same time. And it's it's funky. I think if this game had slightly different art and animations were slightly faster, people would love this game. <laughs> I completely agree. It just looks like shit and is very slow. Yeah. 
Also on this screen is a uh, an enemy, the jellyfish, which looks like if a Metroid was also a jellyfish. Our notes from Fletcher, who has a vocal problem today and could not be here, uh, describe it as the worst enemy in the game. And he says they could full party poison you, drain HP to keep themselves alive, avoid a bunch of your attacks because they have to be hit with ranged weapons due to flight. Sucks to be using Ziggy like I guess Fletcher is just enough defense that drain HP can sometimes undo an entire round of attacks. He thinks they are extremely long encounters and his longest one was seven minutes and he wants to know how we felt about the jellyfish. Well, I can tell you that I avoided every jellyfish with the exploding field effect barrels to freeze them in their tracks, except for one. And I hated that fight so much that every other time I would just use an escape pack. So I, I killed it one time and it took me about three and a half, four minutes. Because the other thing is that even though they require ranged attacks, they're weaker to physical range attacks than they are to ether range attacks. And so chaos was also kind of useless for me here. Okay, so I did all of these because they give you an insane amount of points. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. you can do them in about a minute because you just have Xion Boost Jr., so he can use back-to-back -back Storm Waltz, the coin move, after mm -hmm. a physical attack on his fast slot, and he kills them in two turns, which he gets right in a row. Okay. Yeah, I was running with Xion Jr. and Chaos, and having the revenge item equipped to Jr. really helped me in this fight, along with already having extracted the uh, poison resistance for all of my party members. Like, right. the jellyfish was really uh, uh, kind of nothing, but I kind of fell into it being nothing. Well, you got to use Analyze, basically. Mm -hmm. It seems like we're getting to a point where if you don't use Analyze on every new enemy type, you're going to be in for an extremely bad time unless you luck into what you're supposed to do to them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The kind of back third of this game, all of the random encounters are about learning the exploits because there are a lot of high HP enemies that you fight in just regular encounters now. And so you really need to know how to manipulate the battle system in order to have an easy, breezy, beautiful time. Uh, that takes us into the second screen. Yeah. So we move into the main sector, which is incredibly convoluted. There are uh, so many overlapping uh, paths and I believe four to six uh, different uh, levels uh, to get around and navigate on uh, to find the rest of our uh, evacuees. Yeah, not including interiors. So it's like four tiered, but tiered also with additional depth. So when you get to the top of tier one, there's a front part on a roof, and then you go inside to explore the interior before you get to another tier's roof, and then there's more depth on top of that. It's a lot. Yeah, it's a whole lot. And mm -hmm. then on top of that, you can only sort of use your previous knowledge about the layout of this sector because they block off certain entrances and exits with debris and flames. And so some of your shortcuts and loop arounds that you're used to won't work. Nine of your 13 guys are on this one screen to tell you what the density is like. Yeah, right. Some highlights here for me include King the Crime Lord, who's obsessed with his cat. You rescue him <laughs> and uh, push the button <laughs> to reveal his secret top story and then go rescue his cat from a gnosis. And if you approach her from the outside first, if you don't go into King's hideout as the first thing you do, it like stops and you see through the window the cat 
hissing with her back arched and her tail all aggressive and defensive. It's a cute little touch. Yeah, like staring down yeah. a larva doll, um, the enemy that is like a, a Final Fantasy zombie that gets healed by everything from um, from the Encephalon dive. Yeah. Except now they evolve into another monster that has 300 HP and gets healed by everything and still does confusion. And it has <laughs> fucking weird, sick-ass praying mantis limbs just attached to the sides of its chin. It looks like a Shadow Hearts enemy. Oh my god, it does, you're right. Yeah. You know, the Gnosis enemy designs are real hit and miss. Some of them are cool, and some of them are like, what the fuck am I even looking at? And I liked the larva mask design quite a bit. It's fucking berserkers in their fucking crinkle fry arms. <laughs> um, on this screen, were there any other uh, highlights as far as little puzzles or civilian interactions for you guys? I mean, as far as like the environmental puzzle... I enjoyed the general level design in that it shows you a door that you cannot reach. And within about five minutes, you can reach that door by either dropping a ladder or raising a platform, things mm -hmm. of that nature. Oh, man, I went down the bakery slide before I put up the ladder and had to go all the way back through everything and all of the <laughs> encounters again. Oh, no. that's a rough loop. And then also I had missed a guy, so I still had to do that a third time. Uh-huh. The guy I missed was the one in front of the windows who's hidden in a wall by a larva doll. I beat the larva doll, didn't notice the wall because you can see much farther than the destruct button prompt. So I just like, well, this appears to be a dead end on the minimap. I don't see a treasure. There must be nothing here because the guy's green arrow doesn't show up on your minimap until you blow up the wall. Oh, no. <laughs> but you can see that there's nothing there without getting close enough to get the prompt to blow up the wall, which is what happened. <laughs> as far as characters, the, the only one that I really uh, noted as enjoying was uh, the part timer that we find in a room who kind of breaks the fourth wall saying, I'm not even an important <laughs> character. Yeah, what's up with that? <laughs> It's like they, you know, they have all these stories like the bickering mother and son in the laundry shop. And that's where you find this woman. And then this woman is just like, I don't even go here, essentially. <laughs> um, we should, for Fletcher's sake, call out the other funny one, which is there's a guy who is huddled and hiding on top of a town statue. I love him. <laughs> And to rescue him, you have to destroy the statue underneath his feet, which doesn't cause him to, like, collapse and break his back. It just causes him to be huddling in front of you instead of on top of the statue anymore. And I didn't realize that this statue was of Xion's eggs unit. And in Fletcher's notes, he said that as he was playing that part, one of his partners said, hey, what's that? And uh, Fletcher said, it's Xion's eggs without thinking. And his partner was very confused at what fallopian tubes looked like in the year 4000. Oh no, I just caught on to that even though I've known about that joke for an hour and I'm very upset. Yes, Shion's eggs. Yeah, her eggs, got it. Mm -hmm. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Mm -hmm. Joke's on him, I know people from Wisconsin, so I just read it as A-Y-G, the way they say bag. <laughs> <laughs> I made two interesting observations in this dungeon. One is that the destruction sound is not the same file every time because like if you blow up the crate in king's room and then the um, bag they actually have like slightly different sound effects interesting oh. i knew the plate glass uh destruction was a different noise i didn't know they had it uh divided up further yeah and the uh bullet ricochet in junior storm waltz is not static it's dynamic 
the number of bullet lines change based on how many enemies they are, and they will actually always hit every enemy because basically they're like programmed to route from one side of the coin spread to an enemy to a coin on the other side and back. So it actually looks very different depending on how many enemies there are and how they're laid out. It was like mm. an interesting thing to notice. Uh, and I was like, boy, they sure did waste a lot of time on everything in this game. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a very like proto Final Fantasy 13. Like we must pay attention to all of these individual assets over a grand theory of cohesion moment. That's a thing you do when your right. boss is out for the day and no one tells you to do something different. <laughs> yeah and that developer was the only person on the development team who knew that existed and is very happy that you saw it chris it's great i like it <laughs> noticing it added a lot of visual variety to a move i'm doing every single turn for sure mm -hmm. it's so strong hell yeah it is you gotta get those casino items the brave soul and the golden dice which uh dramatically increase your attack and then further increase your attack based on your percentage of missing hp now that you have enough ether points to give uh, Shion a safety bit where a character can't go below one. And then you hemlock him. and Yeah, buddy. Mm -hmm. And you cast it every oh. turn and Junior does like 1200 damage to all the guys. Hell yeah. Try not to break it out for the boss. But once I've seen every every unique encounter in an area, I'm like, all right, now this is functional. Now that I don't have to figure out what's up with these guys, let's get through it real fast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh. When you rescue all 13 people, all of the random encounters in the area vanish. Unless you go inside, then fuck you. <laughs> if you go inside in the hotel, the encounters between the door and the save point will disappear, but everything else is there. So if you go slightly left, you still have to fight a bunch of kobolds again. <laughs> Just don't go left, Chris. <laughs> You've done your job. No, I'm dumb and don't know where things are, John. After 30 hours, I still got lost in the Dead Rising safe room, even though it's shaped like an L. <laughs> uh, but the guy's there. The guy is in a different location. The guy who was telling you how many civilians there are, and he offers to sell you something. I think he's the mayor. Yeah. And then he's like, well, I got to go now. Yeah. And then he leaves. And then when you go to leave, some motherfucker rolls up on you. Got like a real gross long neck. It's like a bone dinosaur. It is like a bone dinosaur, actually. Uh, it has this like giant fuck off spear and you immediately get into a uh, battle. And in the first turn, it just splits into two guys who have different weaknesses, one week to beam and one week to slash. And they both have a bunch of different multi-target attacks. And the strategy here is to focus fire one down, but spread out damage a little because the survivor will suddenly have a one hit KO attack. Uh, this was actually an extremely difficult fight for me as a result of this, because the one on the right takes reduced damage from ether attacks. Mm -hmm. And when you're rocking Shion and Chaos and your primary attacks are AOE attacks, that got rough. Oh, yeah. They have a lot of HP individually. The less time that the second one is left up after the first one dies, the better. The big attack here that's a problem is Frostbite that hits both rows for a significant chunk of health. Uh, our notes say it can be between 300 and 500 a person, depending on the party. Luckily, they capped out at like 270 because Chaos and Junior are pretty ether resistant. And I noticed that Shion was not, so I had bumped her up to a relevant level two, which wound up being great because at one point, Shion was the only person left alive with two HP. This was a tight fight for me. 
Yeah, I ended up dying a couple of times and then reconfiguring my skills and equipment to just boost everyone's ether defense. And that helped a lot. The other thing that helped a lot for me is Junior's spell Misty, which won't cancel out the Frostbite or Wave Slash attacks that are so brutal, but it will cancel out the single attack Soul Curse attack. It's not quite called Soul Curse, but it's something like that. And then also will cancel out the one-hit KO attack because Junior's Misty Ether ability cancels out enemy ether spells it's not one of those cancel out abilities where they'll just choose a different attack they'll fire it and it won't work and so they'll boost and they'll waste their boost turn on a one hit ko that doesn't do shit that sounds very great i wish i had done that what i had done was different and worked out really well because i killed the first one before it got really a chance to do anything but boy was it not good for the second one Mm -hmm. their drop and rare drop are an item called spirit um, which is the user's ether defense is raised as allies are KO'd and their vitality raises also. Our notes say, fun trick. If you can get a thief character into the first round of battle, you can steal an extra one of these from Gigas before it splits into two on its first turn. Fun fact, you can steal three of them. <laughs> <laughs> what I wound up doing is I came in here, I gave Xion boost and haste and Junior had haste. So Xion rolls in, haste Junior, who haste Xion, who haste chaos and then we basically just started like also having Xion boost junior since Xion doesn't have an aoe attack that doesn't cost a lot of ether because even with the angel ring the beyblade costs a lot of ether yeah yeah it does so i managed to get the first one down very fast but things went very poorly on the second one uh, and mm -hmm. it was a struggle to get through with everyone alive getting XP, which we all know is you don't get Boston XP in a JRPG. You have failed. Yeah, absolutely. Very tight. Very tight. How'd it go for you, John? It honestly didn't go too bad. I burned two revives in my fight. Other than that, though, I I just had uh, Junior shooting up the one that was weak against Slash while Shion and Chaos were blasting beams straight at the other one uh, until their health got low when I swapped over to the eggs. And then Junior already had a beam weapon on his eggs, so I kind of just swapped the ratio, and I downed them within about two turns of each other. Oh, nice. Uh, I was doing the whole fight where one was basically every turn boosting into doing the one-hit KO attack. And let me tell you, we used about 30 of those 99 revives. <laughs> Holy shit. Boy. It was not good. Uh, yeah. yeah, this is a stressful fight. Yeah, since you have different resistances on each enemy, it decides to uh, swap the perspective from all the other boss fights where it switches uh, to uh, behind uh, the enemy camera uh, while the enemy is taking their turn and swaps back to behind your characters, which really disorients things if you have ADD. <laughs> oh, yeah. This fight is interesting in that we haven't really had like just a high numbers boss because every boss has basically been a gimmick fight before. Right. This is right. really mm -hmm. your first high numbers boss since the carrier. Mm -hmm. It's also another boss for me that really highlights how sloppy eggs combat feels implemented into the game. I am having so much more success with my lower HP party members fighting these really big enemies in human form instead of getting into their mechs because turn manipulation matters so much. And also 
eggs are slow. And so when you're fighting two high numbers enemies that both have a lot of speed and also both are pretty boost happy, um, your eggs can just get wrecked, even though you look at these big fuckos and you think, oh, I should get in the robot for this fight. You should not get into the robot for this fight or almost any fight. Well, and every time that you jump into the eggs, your verbs are reduced to three actions, just guard, attack, or W act. Right. So all semblance of utility is thrown out the window at that point. That's That was going to be a part of my point, is that they're non-reactive, right? Because there is an objectively numerically best set of eggs equipment at every point in the story, but that means you don't have the variety to react to different enemy types and all eggs are good for is numbering guys down. Right. right. And also kidding out eggs is really expensive. After the Gigas fight, uh, we get a, a small uh, a small smattering of cutscenes. Uh, we begin with Albedo uh, taking to his mech and being very much bigger and very much stronger than its standard Federation eggs. He completely uh, blasts away entire ships, entire space whales, and just about every mook in his path. He just flies through three eggs. It is real Gundam versus Zaku energy. Oh, 100%. I'm glad that Fletcher put that this was an ES in the notes because when ES are introduced in Xenosaga episode two, they feel very much out of nowhere. So it is nice to know that there was a bigger, better robot in episode one. And it, it's not just a whole cloth retcon invention in episode two. Okay. So everyone gets on the shuttle to return the, to the Darendal, but Momo is left behind healing the evacuees who aren't able to make it onto the ship quite yet. Those poor people, just all those people standing in line, just listening to her say mystic powers grant me a miracle for the next 40 minutes. <laughs> fucking walk straight back into the Gnosis. <laughs> no, I'm good. Just let me bleed out. <laughs> uh, so we regain control of the party for about two seconds until we find that the train won't let us go uh, to our beds. We return to the Kukai Foundation to find that Momo's missing. We leave again back to the Durandal, uh, where we're only allowed to visit the residential area. Uh, this whole section is linear, and it mostly serves to see like the aftermath, showing all of our uh, refugees packing the ship and the, uh, the challenges that they're facing, down to what appears to be an old woman trying to sell her body in the uh, residential area. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, we walk by a lot of blood and a lot of trauma, and um, we hear from some of the realians on board the Durandal. But there's a detail where they're like, technically, the Durandal has the capacity to house all these people, but we don't have the resources to house them for any kind of long term period of yeah. time. Big Galactica vibes. Mm -hmm. Totally Galactica vibes. What's interesting about this area is... Um... They've done a really good job because I know they basically just started like cutting shit out of this game and gluing it together with cutscenes. And they did a really good job of it where you don't notice it really. Mm -hmm. Except for here, when you leave to the Durandal, then she's not there. And then you go back to the Durandal. And it is like really clear to me that that was probably like an exploration where you would see the aftermath. But they didn't have time or resources for that because otherwise yeah, what would the so. point of that be but the flagging yeah. was already done so they just made you go back right right that makes sense and the way that this game glues its narrative and its structure back together works so much better than xenogears where because they were designing it quasi-linearly from start to finish you just have a dozen hours of fey narrating on a dark stool like it's an open mic night i'm glad we don't have Shion in open mic night mode at the end of this game that would that would have sucked oh god uh and that's it for the week uh if for some reason you don't play until after you listen to the episode you actually can't go to the residential area right now uh what you have to do is you have to go save on the elsa yeah as soon as we head to the residential area proper is when the cutscene brick begins and so yeah if you want to save save on the elsa you get you get locked in i believe i had about 40 minutes between the save before the cussing break and uh the following save so boy yeah get ready unfortunate pacing for this episode because the next episode will probably be extremely long because boy does a lot happen in that 40 minutes oh goodness yes that's it for the narrative portion of the episode do we have anything interesting any interesting party development i think we're all rocking the same party basically but with slightly different ability loadouts Mm -hmm. no good party chat but john what do you think of this episode in particular what do you think of this section this section i enjoyed it and i loved the level design uh the enemy encounters became a bit of a slog uh where i was emulating it so i just turned on turbo every time i hit an enemy fight uh, <laughs> because the enemies weren't so much difficult as they were tedious and just i know i can defeat this i just need to blast through these animations it is just the animations are too long. That's literally the main problem with the game. Yeah. Yeah. And this is where it really started hitting me uh, for some reason. I think just because uh, I kept on cycling back over myself over the same enemy encounters. The worst area for me to try to find out what the pacing is really like without turbo mode. Wrong episode for that. Yeah. <laughs> I I love how John and I turned turbo mode on on the same episode where Chris turned turbo mode off. <laughs> it's the duality of men. <laughs> but in this episode, I at least really like all of the little side stories. There were a couple uh, side quests that I uh, ran into before this episode, but here is really where I felt more character in the game than I had felt for the previous sections. Hmm. There hasn't been a lot of character. Well, well, there there has been character, but not outside of our core group. Yeah, it feels really long in between times with civilians because it's really the Wolglinde, a little bit at Dot Colony, 
at the Kukai Foundation before it's ruined, but after that, it's like cathedral ship time. So it is a long yeah. time before you get to interact mm -hmm. with people again. Yeah, yeah. And uh, this gives each of those uh, people a little narrative as well. Right. And that's like Chris said earlier in the episode, that is a really big strength of the game for me is villager flavor. And so pacing once again being this game's Achilles heel, it's very Swiss cheese the way it's distributed to us because where we do get it, it's really rich. And then there are just huge chunks where it doesn't exist. Real dino DNA. Real dino DNA. <laughs> Um, I went on a journey with this section. At first, I was like, oh, God, not another Will Glinde escape. We've already done this. And then I was like, oh, cool. Actually, I really like the visual touches, about how the different rooms were ransacked and all of that and all of the really dense, clever little traversal puzzles. I loved that. I loved the little lore details. I love their shitty townhomes and like their shitty duplex that is clearly yeah. they like the landlord did not even bother to close the door between them. And it's only covered by a bookshelf. But when you go mm -hmm. in there, you move from a house to the laundromat. Love that. Really exploring the space. It's a big jump from the uh, pristine future tech of the Walt Glinda in that you have objects thrown about the rooms uh, in a way that feels more natural. It feels more lived in than other environments we've seen. Absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah, just a little flavor bits. Um, King's gang goon who shoved his girlfriend in a shipping crate to protect her. Uh -huh. And then the baker who's trying to defend the bakery because, uh, you know, even though the game kind of implied that he worked his workers to the bone and it was quasi slave labor, he's like, this bread is full of the dreams of children. Is that the uh, baker? Is that the yeah. toy shop above the bakery? It looks like a toy shop. Okay, so yeah, right. The baker was the taskmaster who sucks, and the toy maker is just a magical toy maker who it's okay. Mm -hmm. That makes more sense. We love him. The, that that the that the dreams of children do not exist in fucking bread. The other side of my journey though is that, John, like you mentioned, um backtracking in this area fucking sucks because it's so dense in such a small space. That means that Almost none of these encounters are avoidable. There, a lot of them are in really narrow corridors. And so if you miss a person, if somehow in all of your searching, you don't find that 13th citizen, you're fucked unless you go to a guide because you're going to be going through these really narrow corridors. There are only like three or four environmental hazard barrels in both screens. And so I got really really frustrated with the random battles and was kind of cursing that side of xenosaga more than even cathedral ship did me shout outs to chaos's supreme judgment skill for trivializing the encounter that is four berserkers because it has all enemy healing oh that's perfect <laughs> uh the beyblade summon also just wrecks all four kobolds in one go yeah also just having like the double buster and junior yeah. Yeah. There are ways to exploit it. But like you said earlier, John, it is just a time tax at that point then, because these enemies aren't really challenging us too scarily, except for the one that Fletcher and I had a lot of trouble on the gelfish. Yeah. But otherwise, yeah, until the boss, it's more of a slog than it is a challenge. 
Yeah, which is a bit of a shame because, I mean, before this, playing this playthrough of Xenosaga is the first experience I've had with the series. And honestly, it's my favorite JRPG combat system that I've run into. Hell yeah. It has those crunchy systems. It has ways to kind of not not get around the combat, but enhance it and actually have some utility in a fight and influence turn order in a way that you wouldn't be able to in some other JRPGs. I very much enjoy that. And they really design around that in like a way you don't usually get beyond like a game where you fully heal like Final Fantasy 13. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are almost no mash regular attack to win encounters in this game at all even the random rube encounters try to play with the combat system a little bit at least Mm -hmm. in terms of party stuff for this episode shion winds up being the most interesting character to develop because she doesn't get aoe attacks that aren't ether abilities like the summons so you don't need to spend a lot of tech points setting them to high speed so her stats are super low and she winds up being like a Dark Souls character where you decide like how you're going to build it out. Mm-hmm. And that was quite interesting. So at this point, I just dumped a bunch into Ether Attack, Ether Defense. Boy, uh, Shion's skills have a lot higher Ether Attack scaling than most of the other skills because Spell Ray hits for like 350 Mm-hmm. Yeah. despite her having only like 38 ether points now but hp is yeah. so fucking expensive it's 150 tech points to get 10 yeah and the fact that they share a pool with the tech ability it's you really have to make hard choices about what stats you're gonna boost glad i put 20 more hp points in because that saved the gigas fight oh yeah <laughs> absolutely um that's it for the episode. Let's commercials. John, do you have a commercial for the listeners? I do have a commercial for the listeners. First, I want to say thank you for having me on, guys. It is exciting to be on Lightning Strikes Twice again. You can find me over at another network show, Magmar Sucks, where we rank Pokemon by how interesting they are. Uh, you can also find me on Pokemon Stop Premium. Pay us money if you want to hear us talk about G Gundam with John and Mark and Matt. There's so many cool robots. Mm, they're cool looking robots but they're not cool you know what i mean they're visually cool a lot of them are lame yeah g gundam is a bunch of sick looking dorks beating each other up love it my man stacked on the butt region you know what i'm saying (laughs) hell yeah (laughs) also motherfuckers named chibo d crockett this incredible it's standard american name (laughs) <laughs> it's 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 a, it's the closest that G Gundam gets to a Tomino as Tomino name. And so I appreciate Chibo Day Crockett for that. <laughs> Real Quattro Bagina hours. Extremely mm-hmm. Quattro Bagina or Lila Mila Ryra hours. That motherfucker just named a character an idiot kitty kitten. Fuck you, Tomino. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you can find me online at Weeplord and listen to my music at Catastrophizer uh, on SoundCloud or a different band, Canadan Deverin, on Bandcamp. Uh, you can listen to Ryan and I's podcast, Lightning Strikes Twice Extreme, by visiting the Patreon at tentacle.pro and kicking in as little as a buck a month. It's this podcast, but about Final Fantasy XIV, the MMO. You can also, I guess, email me personally, figure out what my email is, and I'll cyberbully you. Uh, that's all until next time, where we'll be talking about the Song of Nephilim and the cutscene Brick up until Proto-Merkab. Peace out, fuckers. Bye-bye. Bye.